Hey, Transit Unplugged listeners. Before we get to this episode, here's a quick word from a previous guest. It's Bob Schneider. Looking forward to the Think Transit conference with Trapeze in Nashville, Tennessee in early June. We'll be focused on some of the trends going on at OmniRide, things that are happening in the industry with technology, and great opportunities to learn a little bit about some relationships with board members, good, bad, or indifferent. Thanks, Dr. Schneider. If you're interested in learning more, visit trapezegroup.com slash thinktransit. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals in North America. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. Hi, it's Paul Comfort. On today's edition of Transit Unplugged, I speak with a retired CEO, someone who spent uh, basically a lifetime, a career uh, at one transit authority, which is different than what a lot of um, careers are like in the transit industry. I've interviewed probably a dozen transit CEOs now as part of this podcast, and um, most of them stay at one place for a few years and then move on to a different place where I was CEO at the MTA in Baltimore, someone recently posted online that the average uh, tenure for an administrator or a CEO of that transit system is two years, and they've had uh, 10 CEOs in the last 20 years. And that may be about an industry average, two to three, four years for a CEO or a chief executive officer of a transit agency. But Michael Allegra, uh, who was the CEO of Utah Transit Authority, spent over 30 years at one agency and worked his way up in the agency. It is interesting to see what people do in retirement, which is one of the reasons why I interviewed Michael, to talk to him about, um, you know, how do you transition out of that role? People are interested in CEOs, uh, their career path, how they got to be a CEO, but what happens when the gig is up, uh, when you retire or you're pushed out or uh, you, you just move on to a better opportunity? Uh, and so we wanted to talk about that graceful uh, transitions of careers at the end of them. So, for instance, I've been in the transit industry for 30 years. Um, and uh, at this point, a lot of people are retiring if they've worked for one company. You've got your 30 years in. You've got your pension. I have no intention of retiring anytime soon. I'm 52 years old and feel like I've got another good 20 years left in me uh, to work and, and enjoy the work uh, of helping people through transit. There are about 190 to 195 major transit systems in North America, meaning systems with over 100 buses. Um, And in those systems, of course, most of them have an executive director or a CEO uh, or an administrator, general manager, whatever their title is. um, And they will have worked their way up to to that point in their career. And as we talk about on our program, there's um, a lot of skill sets involved in being a CEO. It's one of the reasons why I enjoy interviewing CEOs so much. And they all have a different career path and they all have a different take on what they do day to day. Many of them feel like they spend at least half their time kind of doing politics. So it's interesting to see uh, how many of these transit CEOs in retirement would go into politics, you know, real politics, retail, run for office, et cetera. Uh, what we've seen uh, so far as I as I look across the industry and look at my friends who have retired from the business, some of them just simply retire. They uh, retire after a long career. Uh, they kind of go out on top and they enjoy the retirement, travel, golf, whatever, spend time with the family. Others of them, a lot of them become consultants uh, in the industry. Uh, and so they'll start their own consulting firm or go work for a consulting firm. Others of them go work for big engineering firms. 
that's the path that um, Carolyn Flowers took, and uh, I interviewed her uh, recently, and, and uh, she's had a, a good transition to an engineering, a big engineering company. Um, others of them uh, maybe enter into other paths where they might become CEO of a, uh, a transit association or something like that and move into association management. Uh, the skill sets, again, involved in uh, managing a big agency with federal, state, and local dollars with hundreds or usually thousands of employees and contractors and all the, all the, uh, the glare of the spotlight. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's a tremendous honor to head up a large transit agency, but it's also a tremendous responsibility and requires really a great skill set. I used to say, both in my job, really primarily in my job as CEO of two county governments in Maryland, that uh, I felt like my job was dancing on the head of a thousand needles trying not to get stuck because you're dancing around back and forth trying to keep all these interest groups happy. And uh, so it is rare for someone to go through their whole career without getting uh, a needle prick or two along the way because it is so precarious a position. You have so many bosses. Um, you know, when you, when you work for a board of directors and you've got lots of politicians and you're, uh, who, who want to see brand new projects or you, they want to see a line extended out to their community, et cetera, and you're trying to balance your budget and answer to some groups. And some people have two or three boards they have to report to. Others may only have one person. Uh, they report up to, uh, you know, a secretary of transportation or, uh, or the governor or the mayor in their city, whatever, the executive branch. So there's lots of different approaches uh, to governance of these transit agencies. And that has a lot to do with kind of the end of career move for CEOs, because sometimes depending on if they, if a CEO gets into a fight with their boss or with the board of directors or new members of a board of directors come in and they want to have a new direction, sometimes that is impacted by local elections. So let's say, for instance, that a mayor puts on half or a majority or several members onto the board of an independent transit authority, those, that new mayor may want to take the transit system in a new direction. Um, and then they'll put on new members of a board who look at the old CEO as someone who was carrying out the wishes of the previous board of directors and maybe the previous mayor. And so they may move to uh, make a political move and have that person removed, you know, not for cause necessarily, uh, but simply exercise the out that's normally in their contracts. A lot of transit CEOs, most of them have contracts with their board and the contracts will allow them to be removed not for cause or for cause. And if they're removed not for cause, oftentimes there's a severance amount that'll go six months to a year of annual salary, which will also help some of these top CEOs transition out and move into the next job because it is difficult a lot of times to find a really good job at the top of an agency unless you move. And a lot of people don't want to move. They don't want to move their family to a new city or to a new location. Many big CEOs uh, have a career of having to move around the country to move from one operation to another. We recently uh, interviewed Nat Ford, who is the CEO of the Jacksonville Transit Authority and current chairman of APTA, and he's moved around the country to several jobs from the West Coast back to the East Coast. Um, he was at, at uh, MARTA and then out to San Francisco and then back to Florida. And so a lot of movement is sometimes required if you want to continue to move up in your career. Many CEOs do not want to uh, take a transit system that is smaller than the one they were already CEO over because it could appear as a move backwards in their career. So, for instance, um, I was CEO of uh, arguably the 11th largest transit system in America in Baltimore, 
And uh, so the question is, you know, do you take a smaller system that may be ranked 25 uh, in number of passengers or number of miles or number of vehicles, however you want to measure it, uh, or does that seem like a step backwards for someone? Do, are they looking for a step up to move to a larger system? Uh, and so all those considerations are taken into consideration by a CEO as they consider what their next move is. So we talk about that a little bit today with Michael Allegra, but it's just um, kind of a little bit more perspective I wanted to give you since it was, this was a shorter interview. I wanted to give you a perspective on what it's like to be a CEO transitioning out and moving to the next phase of your career. Hopefully you'll enjoy this interview with Michael Allegra, who was considered one of the fathers of our industry, who's been around quite a while, very active in the transit associations. He still is helping a lot of um, folks in the industry in his new role as a consultant, uh, moved into that job, as a lot of those CEOs do, as I mentioned. So hopefully you enjoy today's episode, and we've got some great ones coming up. I know you're going to enjoy as you continue to listen to Transit Unplugged. And one more bit, uh, I'll, I'll throw in a plug. Make sure you go to um, iTunes, if this is how you, the platform you use, and um, subscribe to Transit Unplugged. You can subscribe to it so you'll get every episode. You won't miss it, as you know. Transit Unplugged comes to you basically twice a month. We unleash a new episode. Also, I'd appreciate it if you took the opportunity to rate uh, Transit Unplugged. You can give it one to five stars, and you can even write a comment about whether you like it or, or what you'd like to see, who you'd like to see interviewed in the future. You can do that right there, uh, or you can also do it at our www.transitunplugged.com website. Uh, where you can also subscribe and listen to the shows. And let me know how you enjoy Transit Unplugged. I think it's been uh, a great opportunity to expose people to maybe a part of the industry that has not had a lot of light shined on it, which is uh, at the top, the C-suite. What is it like to be a CEO? What are the big projects you're working on? What are the trends that are coming that are affecting you? We look at all that pretty much on every episode of Transit Unplugged. Thanks so much for being a loyal listener, a faithful listener, if you have been, or if you're a new listener, hopefully you enjoy this episode. You go back and listen to some of the previous ones and stay plugged in to our Transit Unplugged podcast as we continue to take a look at the transit industry through the eyes of those who lead it. I'm Paul Comfort. Thanks for listening. Now we go to Michael Allegra. I'm Paul Comfort, your host of Transit Unplugged, the national podcast which is taking the transit industry by storm. And today we've got a great guest, Michael Allegra, who was the former CEO of the Utah Transit Authority uh, and had quite a career that I'm interested to talk to him about and also some amazing results, including doubling the ridership, uh, which is something well, during his term, which is something that the rest of the country is still struggling with. Michael, great to have you with us. Good to see you, Paul. Thank you. We're here at the APTA uh Business Board of Governors Annual Meeting in Palm Springs, California, sitting out overlooking a beautiful golf course, just like my other interview with Nat yeah. Ford. Uh, and uh, Michael and I got to talking here about his career, and uh, it's very interesting. Michael, a lot of our listeners are interested in, you know, uh, I want to be a leader in the transit industry. I'd like to become a COO, a CFO, a CEO. Talk about your career path and how you ended up as, uh, as head of a, a major transit authority here in the U.S. Yeah, thanks. You know, I feel like I've had a Cinderella career. You know, I got, I've gotten what I wanted. And I started off uh, very early. I got a master's in transportation engineering. Okay. And I moved to Utah, one, because I like to ski, and two, because they had a growing community and, and a big need for mass transit. And my thesis and my uh, studies were all in mass transportation. So I got in really early, initially starting at their, what's called the Metropolitan Planning Organization. Which sure, is an MPL. Yeah. That does all the federal funding and all the long-range planning and those kinds of things, and then quickly moved to the Utah Transit Authority. So I am unique in one 
regards in that I spent 37 and a half years at one agency. Wow. And I did virtually every job except uh, fundamentally driving the bus or fixing the bus. Right, yeah. And so I was able to grow and expand in, in my knowledge about how everything worked together, the financial and the marketing and the human resources. Um, but I had some great bosses and some great mentors, too, that were equally passionate and uh, interested in growing the transit organization in Utah. So when I first started, we were uh, the we, we called ourselves the uh, the best mediocre transit agency in the United States. Oh, that's great! And we said, okay, you know, this community is growing. People, uh, it's it's got geography aligned for public transportation. It's a long linear community. It had great core values, and we said, this is a place that transit's really going to shine. And so for 20-some years, we, we embarked upon a long-range vision of extending transit beyond just bus systems to a very integrated system, included rail and buses and biking and walking and those kinds of things. And I'd have to say that it was initiated by an organization that uh, some may have heard of called Envision Utah. It's okay. a public-private partnership initiated by the governor at that time and a key business person, it was a public-private partnership to say, how do we want to grow and where do we want to be in 30 or 40 years? And that really was the foundation and the basis for the growth and development of the Utah Transit Authority. So we got in on the ground floor of that. And frankly, in my career, I was able to do virtually every role that it took to, to uh, plan, fund, design, build, construct, operate uh, a, a very successful system. Oh, that's great. A little bit about the Utah Transit Authority itself, maybe. Uh, I'm always interested in the governance structures, having been a CEO myself in a very unique position in Maryland where I didn't have a board of directors. I reported to the Secretary of Transportation. So every state is different. Is the Utah Transit Authority over the whole state, or is it just over Salt Lake City, or how does that work? Yeah, a couple of good questions in there. Number one, uh, the Utah Transit Authority in the state of Utah is really one of the most urban areas in the United States because 80% of its population is within uh, a couple hundred square miles. Really? Everything else All around is, Salt Lake? Yes. Everything else is either desert or not. I didn't know that. Interesting. And so yeah. it's a very populous area. And we are the entity that runs service to 80% of the state's population. Okay. But we are a typical transit agency run by a volunteer board. Mm -hmm. uh, but our nuance is that our board wanted us to run as close as possible with business principles to to although we don't make money to run as efficiently and as effectively as possible and that really transitioned when we got into this major four billion dollar capital development program where they said run it as best you can we're going to reward or penalize you depending on whether you make our goals or not did you have a fair box recovery ratio mandate or goal we did not although it uh, the the um, the policy was to make it as high as we could. Yeah, they didn't want to set a particular goal, and but that was the rationale for why we started building rail, is because the fare box recur return on investment there was so much higher. Oh yeah, than it is with bus. What 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 do you recall? I mean, what year did you retire? By the way, I retired in 2015. Okay, a couple years ago. And what was your highest fare box recovery ratio that you recall you had there? So buses were on average between 12 and 15%. Okay, uh, that's rail, about average, yeah. 
got to be between 45 and 50 percent. Mm -hmm. So on average, we got in the 20, 25 percent range when we combined all good. the services together. So you, you started your career at an MPO, planning organization, and then as you worked in the transit authority there, you basically had the opportunity to be involved in the ground floor on a master plan and then implement it and see it come to success. Right. Wow, how thrilling. It was. That's because uh, most of us in the business, you know, maybe last two to five years at a transit system and then move on. And, but you had the opportunity to see it grow, it sounds like. I tell you, Paul, it, it, gave, it, gives, you, it gives you great ownership in it. You know, you get to know all the nuances. Nobody could tell me something about it that right. I didn't already know. That's okay? good, I yeah. I could be buffaloed about, right. well, somebody said this because I was it. That's cool. And and candidly, it had a lot to do with the partnerships um, in our community. The the support that we had from the, um, the elected officials, from our board, and from the private sector was phenomenal. That's it great. It truly was a, a model. So tell us about some of your big victories and what, you know, I know you did some amazing projects there during your time. Uh, perhaps the, the two biggest that I can uh, speak to is hosting the Winter Olympics. Okay. I, again, had a lot to do with getting the Olympics to Utah. Uh, started that exercise in 1983, and we ended up hosting the 2002 Winter Olympics. Wow, that's a 20-year gig getting it there, huh? <laughs> and that's about what it took to initiate our capital investment program. Okay. At the end of the day, the Olympics was a huge success, uh, and I, again, appreciate all the support from the community, but also the transit industry. They were phenomenal, okay. lending us buses. Gary Thomas lent us trains from Dallas. Wow. People said it couldn't be done, and we just broke down those barriers. Wow, that's neat. Uh, the other big issue was building uh, 200 kilometers of rail transit in 14 years. We built 14 lines, uh, light rail, commuter rail, streetcar, bus rapid transit. We had a huge capital development program. Um, I have credit to the community who passed two uh, incremental sales tax referendums that gave us that authority. The first one was in 2000. Public said, we want you to build this. We came back and said, it'll take us 30 years. <laughs> they came back and said, that's not good enough. We held another referendum. It passed in 2006. They gave us all the resources we needed. Partnered with the federal government, which was a key ingredient here, and being in a red state, that was pretty intriguing, but it really worked. We were able to build um, all of this transit ahead of schedule, uh, under budget, and, and fundamentally double our ridership. Let's talk about that, the importance of um, federal funding for transit infrastructure. That's, you know, we don't want to talk politics, but that's a big um, uh, topic now in Washington that there really is, I think, uh, unanimous, you know, consent on. Everybody agrees we need to invest more. And you were telling me yesterday the importance of that and what you yeah. did. You know, Congressman Schuster hits the nail on the head. It's in our Constitution. The role of the federal government is commerce. The value of public transportation is our economy. Cities are the engines of this nation. To have healthy and thriving cities, you need a good public transportation system. You need good mobility. You need a, a ways for people to live, work, and play, get right. around. And our investments uh, only were leveraged. We put our money where our mouth was, and we came up with the monies first, and then we went to Washington and said, this is what we're going to do. Can you help us? And I'd have to say they were great partners. They That's were great. wonderful partners. So tell us about the actual projects themselves. Were there any big hurdles? And how did you overcome them? That kind of a thing. Well, of course, uh, doing all this so fast, uh, uh, we, we had the philosophy of um, not staffing up to do all this. We had to rely on the private sector 
consultants, contractors, uh, others, project management folks. You did P3s? Uh, we didn't do any P3s because um, at the time that was pretty um, out there. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, when we started our programs in 95 and frankly finished them in 2013. Okay. So P3s, we did variations, and I can talk about that. Um, of P3s, but we found financing to come fairly well out of Wall Street and our contribution oh, okay. by the federal government. That's great. So we got a lot of financial issues going, and I can share with you someday how innovative the contractors were with us. Uh, but we, we, we did virtually every other kind of construction methodology known. Design, bid, build, design, build, Okay. Uh, CMGC, construction alliancing, virtually everything. We even invented a few ourselves to work. Pretty neat. What other kind of challenges did you have? And then tell me about how you got your ridership doubled. That's something I think will interest everybody. I think um, obviously the first challenge is having the right of way. And we were fortunate in Utah after their first referendum in 2000 that we purchased from the Union Pacific uh, over 200 miles of railroad right away. Okay. So that was a huge uh, asset. Uh, and candidly, when I was involved in that exercise, I said, it'll be beyond my lifetime before we'll ever use all of this right away. But it was a good investment for our future. Wow, that is great. Yeah. Five, seven years later, we ended up building on most all of those rights away because we had them and they were in the right places. That's so great. that was a big opportunity yeah. that, that <sighs> once in a lifetime, you know, working with the railroads was a great experience. Um, they're uh, equally challenging to the role of the federal government, <laughs> yeah. but we struck a very good partnership with them. And, That's good. And, and one of the lessons learned there was put ourselves in their shoes. What were they looking for? What do they need? We spent more of our time understanding their needs than selling them on our needs. And at the end of the day, that I think was key to success. Across North America, uh, transit systems are looking at what's next for us. So like in Maryland, where I came from, we were, we were involved in building the Purple Line light rail project. Land, uh, what you talked about right away acquisition was a big part of that. Um, but all over the country, people are investing. Give us a couple, like you just did a minute ago, give us a couple lessons learned that maybe they can uh, learn from, from wh what you did well, or maybe something you learned that, that didn't go so well. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is you asked about P3s. Yes. We, we probably invented PPPs, but okay. they're really partnerships, partnerships, partnerships. <laughs> there you go. They really were the essence of our uh, success. Having a public-private entity, as I mentioned, this Envision Utah that came together, all of the business and political leaders saying, this is how we want our community to grow. In the, in the states, we don't have that healthy of a regional vision. We have city visions, and the city people are responsible for their own cities. But as we get this conglomeration of cities and regions, some MPOs are stronger than others. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, that is one of the lessons learned is get a really strong MPO that recognizes its role in the community of long range planning and the relationship of transit to land use, because that's where we're going to shine. If you look all around the world, that's where they, where they do so well. That's why their ridership and their transit rides per capita and everything else are so much greater than we have in the United States. Talk about that a little more. Go into that in depth, because that's definitely true. In some cities across the world, they're shutting down blocks or the downtown area. Paris is talking about doing that. Other big cities are and making people do bikes, walk or ride transit. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. You know, Canada has tenfold the transit rides per capita that we have in the United States. 
they're no different than us. It's all this, you know, you can't go to Canada and really see the difference other than it's in their uh, planning processes where they are connected to their uh, growth and development of their communities. In Toronto and Vancouver, you see tremendous strides and you see that in Europe. And now you see that in Southeast Asia as well. Yeah. Um, perhaps the best model I can talk to is Hong Kong. Okay. It's a big city, recognizing it, but 70, 80 years ago, the British government set them up where they own the land. So the Metropolitan Transit Regional Agency for Hong Kong basically owns the land around the stations and have been able to invest in that. They're one of the only agencies that I know that pays for themselves, and but half of that money comes from the real estate investments okay. that they have. So they get 50% return on their fare box. The other half of it comes from their real estate developments. Interesting. For me, that's the trend that we have to go to. It's not only healthy financially, it's healthy for air quality, traffic congestion, energy. Right. You know, all of those issues that are very important to us in our nation. How did you double transit ridership during your term there? Gave people what they wanted. Gave <laughs> them access to clean, reliable, healthy, uh, uh, cost-effective public transportation. What was your, do you know what your total daily ridership was and what it went to? That kind Yeah, of we went from about 85 to over 150,000 a day. That's great. In round numbers. Now, um, we're near the end of our time, but I wanted to ask you about uh, successfully making the transition from the top of the heap, you know, from being yep. CEO of a transit system. And then what do you do after that? I mean, most of us, uh, you know, when we retire, we, we want to do something else after that. So tell, talk to us about making the transition. You know, I, I feel like I uh, did a lot, and I'm so fortunate, and, and I had a great team and, and, and mentors, and I feel like I can give back a little bit. Uh, lessons learned or opportunities for the future, uh, and so I'm staying involved as best I can at, at a higher level right now to try to make a difference and share with the next generations, because I think workforce development is our key. We need the younger generations of people to get involved and 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 come up with the new ways of doing business. Things will change, and I recognize that. But there are some lessons learned that I think I can give back and and share some of that um, experiences and some of that enthusiasm that that got us to this point. And final question: Are you optimistic about the future of transit? And if so, why? Absolutely, it is. It is relevant. <laughs> it will it will only become stronger. It will be different. Yes. Uh, we'll have to incorporate other concepts and themes, but the notion of a single auto occupant uh, uh, is probably uh, on its downward cycle. I, th I call this sort of a, a transit revolution. It's changing. It's going and it includes, you know, um, car sharing and everything else uh, other than one person per car. And I see that just thriving, and, and that's going to be the, the new millennials are loving it. The empty nesters are loving it. The communities are recognizing the cost benefits by investing in transit versus simply adding more lanes and highways. Very good. Thank you for being with us today, Michael Legra, former you, CEO of the Utah Transit Authority, and uh, one of the few guys I know who can say he doubled transit ridership in his system. Amazing. And uh, was one of the inventors of really the public-private partnership in capital construction. Thank you for having with, uh, being with us today. Great. Thank you. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.